Hey, welcome to the Happy Rant Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Cluck, joined, as always, by Barnabas Piper. And Pipe, I am uh, I'm freshly returned from Israel, man. I feel uh, renewed, reinvigorated yeah. for the program. Uh, it's a little bit different in the summer. I mean, Ronnie's obviously always traveling, but uh, you and I, I think our travel schedules pick up a little bit in the summer, so it's been tough to get uh, all three of us in the studio at the same time, as it were. But uh, we have a special treat for me today, at least. Uh, in that you're going to be interviewing me about writing. Yeah. Uh, so I am super stoked about that. Always always fun to talk writing with uh, with another writer, with somebody who's knowledgeable about uh, the industry. So uh, I'm looking forward to having that convo with you. But before we do, man, uh, I want to talk about my favorite Puerto Rican coffee roaster, Hector Lagares. <laughs> um, we have not we have not promoted Heck Lagares on the program in the last couple of weeks, but I uh, wanted to remind people that that is a thing still. Uh, that's out there. If you want uh, amazing coffee, uh, go to happyrantpodcast.com, scroll down to where it says coffee, read about Lagaris Roasters and Hector Lagaris, and uh, and get yourself uh, a pound of Happy Rant Signature Blend. And uh, Pipe, I'm going to throw it to you now, man. So we're going we're gonna to change roles on this podcast. Switch seats. We're going to switch seats, as it were, here in the studio. And uh, I want you to fire away, man. Nothing is off limits. Uh, no, no taboo questions or topics. So uh, fire away, and I'll I'll do my best. Okay. All right. Well, I think uh, the last couple episodes we've done since it has been sort of a disjointed summer recording wise, with you traveling and Ronnie traveling and me traveling some have, have we've done some different things. So I interviewed Ronnie about sort of tales from the road from his Christian music career. He interviewed me about how weird it was being a celebrity pastor's kid. So now it is Ted's turn in the hot seat to be interviewed about uh, being a writer. And not just a writer, though, because Ronnie writes stuff and I write stuff, but Ted has more than either of us made a career out of being a writer and teaching writing. And he's published many, many, many more words and pages than than the than Ronnie or I have. So he's he's the most legitimate writer on this podcast. So that's that's where we're going with this today. You're too so, kind, man. Well, it's true, and you don't, you know, you, I, I know that you are proud of your work, but you don't toot your own horn very much, so this is a chance to, uh, this is a chance for me to do that on your behalf, which is the best way to be promoted, to have other people do it for you. Absolutely. All right, so I, I basically just want to hear how you got started to, to begin this thing. So growing up, you grew up in the Midwest, yep. you grew up as an athlete playing football, we'll get into some of that as well. So was writing a thing that you took too early or something you kind of discovered later on in your adolescence or even as an adult? When did you sort of find an affinity for the written word? Yeah, absolutely not a thing, man. And in, in my town, and this is, this is not a knock on my town, but like nobody, nobody read. Like reading and being excited about books wasn't a thing. I mean, it was all, it was all sports for me. It was all sports all the time. And, you know, for me, that was football. And really, it wasn't until... Let's see. Sophomore year of college, uh, I was injured. I had uh, I had broken the same leg twice and ended up getting a big uh, operation on my on my leg. And uh, as I was laid up in the hospital, um, one of my favorite professors, actually the the favorite professor of all time, his name was Doctor Burnworth, Joe Burnworth. Sweet, sweet dude. Uh, passed away a few years ago, but um, just an amazing, gentle guy. He uh, he came by my hospital bed. He came to visit me in the hospital. And uh, I'll never forget it. He said, have you ever considered being a writer? And um, I hadn't. You know, I, I'd, I'd never considered it, never thought about it. Uh, wasn't even a glimmer in my eye, but he like, had did, had me in what, some classes. When he asked you that, did that, like, what image popped into your head? Because if you'd never thought of it, what, did, what was a writer to you in that moment? Like, what, what did that even mean? Dude, I didn't even know. It was, it was honestly, Pipe, it was this douche in, on, on our campus who, you know, referred to himself by like his whole name and then the third at the end, and he wore like <laughs> scarves over t-shirts. That's what I thought it meant to be a writer, you know. Like that sounds a fit. lot like Nashville, actually. Yeah. Oh, exactly. It was like, uh, yeah, this guy was straight out of Central Nashville casting, but uh, you know, fancied himself a writer. Talked about how he's a writer, and and you know, that was my only experience with it. So it was it was a real turnoff. But I, I will say this about growing up. Um, I did grow up in a household that loved books. Uh, my mom was always reading. My dad, 
um, he was a pilot. So often when he would come back from trips from the road, he would bring me a book, you know, and I always read uh, like football books, football biographies. And uh, when I was in probably middle school, he came back from a trip and he had with him uh, George Plimpton's book, Paper Lion, which was kind of a, you know, a landmark book in the in the world of kind of melding literature and sports. So Plimpton was a, a literary figure, uh, kind of infiltrated the world of sports and wrote really beautifully about it, all, all of which I had no idea about. I just thought, great, another football book. But uh, but yeah, read it, loved it, ended up reading Paper Lion every fall, probably for the rest of my life. You know, I still read it in the fall just because it gives me kind of warm, nostalgic vibes about my dad and about the sport. So, um, you know, even unbeknownst to me, I was reading some good stuff back then. And really it was, so after I got hurt, after I thought I'd never play football again, I kind of went into my like angsty putting distance between myself and the football persona phase, uh, in which I started like, you know, growing the hair out and kind of channeling like sound garden in my personal aesthetic, you know, with the, the flannel shirts and the work boots yeah, and rest in peace. Yeah, I know, man. I know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's when I, that's when I met KK. That's when I met my wife. And, um, you know, she was very smart, very literate, kind of a hot little nineties theater girl, uh, motif going on for her. And, um, she read great books and, uh, read my writing and encouraged me to, to do it. And that was really the first time that I thought, you know, this could be the way that I communicate with the world, you know, now that it feels like sports and football is winding down, this could, this could be the thing. And, uh, I just kind of went for it. I just I just went crazy after it. I started reading a ton. I kind of took all that, you know, rage and freakish work ethic that I channeled into football and, and just threw it into writing and, and read a whole bunch and, and started to write a whole bunch. And then things started to pop. What were you writing then? Because uh, it, it's always interesting to see where people start because usually uh, it, it's pretty crappy. Dude, yeah, okay. Without a doubt, it was crappy. <laughs> you know, without a doubt, it was so crappy. So... Uh, the very first time I ever remember seeing KK, my wife, she was a, a senior. I was a sophomore, and she was in this, like, reader's theater group. And I had to go and see one of these things, like, for extra credit for a class. And um, I didn't know her. I didn't know what reader's theater was. I just knew I was going to show up, sign the little clipboard, um, and then leave as soon as they turned the lights out. Like, that was my plan. And um, I showed up to this thing. It was in the theater at Taylor. And um, the lights went down. I signed the clipboard. Um, but then I saw this super hot girl in a red velvet dress. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going I'm to give this <laughs> thing a few maybe, minutes. Maybe stick this one out. Yeah, I'm going to stick this one out. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick it out. I'm a man of integrity. I don't want to sign for the extra credit if I, if I don't plan to, to stay. So uh, I stayed and I checked it out. And it was, uh, it was poetry. It was actually Carl Sandburg's poetry. And... Um, not only did I think she was great, but I thought the, the the poetry was so cool that I went and like checked out this guy's collected works that that night from the library. And and I'm somewhat ashamed to say that the first things I ever wrote and the first things I ever had published were poems. Um, right after undergrad, so after uh, after we graduated, after I graduated, um, we spent a year overseas, spent a year in Lithuania, and uh, I was writing a ton of uh, I'm sure crappy poetry at the time, but. Uh, some of it got published, and uh, that that was the very first thing, man. I'm a little uh, little embarrassed to say that. Well, no, it's I I think it's great. I mean, most people start out writing hot takes these days, so I'm pretty sure That's crappy true. poetry beats that. Um, at least you were trying to do something literary. Um, where was that published, or what did what did publication look like? Because you said it got published. Were you did yeah. did somebody read it and go, oh, we should put this in a magazine, or what 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 was that like? What was Dude, that process? No, somebody got me, uh, it was probably like my mom, somebody got me a book called The Poet's Market. You've probably, I don't know if you've even seen these books, but kind of back before the internet was huge, you would you would go to like Barnes and Nobs and you'd get this book called The Poet's Market or The Writer's Market. And it would list all these markets, all these, you know, little literary magazines or other magazines that would accept submissions from writers. Um, so I wrote these poems, I wrote these, I'm sure, crappy you know, like overwrought poems and, you know, sat down in my little writer's garret with this poet market. And like, I, I put them in envelopes and like mailed them out. Um, so that's what it looked like. And, um, I think I still have the first letter that I got back saying that they were going to publish, um, my poem KK framed it for me and, uh, she framed the poem and she framed the letter and, uh, it was really special, man. It, it was, it was that time in life, you know, you're in your early 20s and you feel like the sky's the limit and you feel like writing is going to be the super glamorous thing. And 
Uh, you just feel like your wife's really impressed, you know. And uh, and I have to tell you, it never quite felt like that again. Um, but I'm glad it felt like that the one time. You know, it was it was really fun to uh, to get that letter back and find out that I had been published. And yeah, give give you a little boost to keep going, dude. It gives you a little boost to keep going. And I realized, like, I want to I want to feel that again. And um, that that led to more things. And and these were small, like little literary poetry journals that. I mean, I'm sure it don't even exist anymore. But uh, the was first it a, one, was it a paid thing, or was it like a you got paid in publicity? No, they paid you in copies of the magazine. So like they sent Ooh, me nice. the letter, and then they sent me like ten copies of the magazine. At which point, I I thought about the people that I knew in real life, and I was like, no one wants this. You know, I, I can't <laughs> think of one person that would want this, including my parents. So. Uh, so yeah, it was a little humbling on, on that level, but uh, but fun, man. You know, you felt like you were a part of something. You felt like, you know, hey, somebody somebody likes my work. Somebody's going to read my work, and you know, little do you know at that age and at that stage, like how uh, freakishly hard it is just to to make it at all. But uh, but it was fun, man. It was really fun. Did you ever catch heat from uh, your football buddies for? I realize you kind of transitioned from traditional jock to yeah. to the the creative literary world but did you ever catch heat for that for that transition from you know meathead to uh to to bookworm yeah no that's a great question you know i never really did to be honest and the weird thing about football is football and this is one of the things i love the most about being a player being a coach football is an extremely accepting world um like basically if you're not a a, a douche you can kind of do whatever you want, you know, and, and the guys are like, Oh, you write, you write poems, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, yeah, just uh, make, just make the play, just make the play. Yeah. Just be a good teammate. Don't be a, don't be a jerk in the locker room. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very accepting world as long as you kind of play your cards right within it. So, um, I did have a nickname the year 2006, the year that I played <laughs> arena football. Um, they knew I was a writer and they knew I was working on a book about the experience uh, so I got the nickname Paperboy. So my nickname was a Paperboy. That's um, a great nickname. Dude, it was. It was perfect. And it was perfect also in terms of how, like, a little bit off it was. Like, it, it wasn't the – it wasn't exactly a perfect reference. And I never explained to the guys, like, well, I'm not the guy that, like, you know, puts a rubber band around the paper and tosses it on your, your doorstep. You know, I'm, I'm like the guy that writes the articles. But, um, you know, in a football context, you don't explain those things per se. But – uh but no, it was a great nickname, man. I absolutely loved it. All right, one other question before we kind of move on with the writing career. So it sounds like you, you sort of tripped and fell into writing because you read books that your dad delivered to I me. Mean, you were around reading, so uh, your parents. But he, you know, Plimpton, Plimpton's book ended up in your hands, and then you sort of accidentally ended up at this at this uh, theater thing where not only did you see your current wife, for the, uh, but you also sort of fell in love with poetry. Any other sort of accidental influences along the way? Oh, and the injury with the professor. So you have sort of three accidental occurrences. Any other things that sort of stand out as accidental occurrences that, that bumped you down the writing line? Dude, yeah, I think almost every occurrence I had as a writer was accidental. So, I mean, and this, is the, this is the weird moment where you start talking about providence, you know, and you realize that like, you know, none of these things were an accident. And, and I think in spite of all my, you know, my, my pro protesting and saying that I wouldn't have wanted to have been a writer or a, an intellectual, I mean, the Lord definitely had it in the cards for me to do this. But um, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of little accidents. Like KK gave me, um, early in our relationship, she gave me a copy of The Catcher in the Rye to read, J.D. Salinger's book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I don't know how I got through like high school and early college without even knowing that this existed, but that's that's the life you live as a meathead, you know, like you really like <laughs> things like that escape you things that are normal to other people like you, they, they just fly right by you. So I read I'll, I'll tell you that there's a there's a benefit in that, too, because I, mm -hmm. I maybe it's because I switched schools a few times growing up, but I missed a number of the books that you're supposed to read in high school. So I didn't read them until my 20s or even yeah. 30s which means that I was old enough to appreciate them. So I oh. didn't read To Kill a Mockingbird or The Great Gatsby yeah. or uh, or any of those until I was old enough to understand kind of the impact of them and really appreciate it. So, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I missed them when I was 16 because I was an idiot. Dude, such a great point, man. Yeah, much of what they assign in high school either A, truly sucks, or, or B, like it's just too soon. You know, it's too soon for a kid. I think it's 
utterly too soon for a high school kid to understand The Great Gatsby. Like, you have to be an adult. You have to have loved and lost. You have to have wanted something that you didn't get uh, in order, you know, for The Great Gatsby to mean anything to you. Right. Um, so, yeah, same, same with me, man. I'm really grateful that, like, I kind of got to experience that stuff as an adult. And uh, it was absolutely the right time. So, yeah, KK gave me Salinger. Um, that blew my mind. That was kind of the first time that I realized that, like, writers could have swagger. You know, that uh, that style was a thing, that style was a part of the whole thing. And uh, then later, somebody gave me um, my first David Foster Wallace book. Um, it was actually a guy who I ended up, you know, this is leaping ahead in the story, but a guy who I ended up, like, massively offending in one of the books that I wrote with Kevin DeYoung. So he probably wouldn't even speak to me if I saw him on the street. But uh, <laughs> but he... He let me borrow my first David Foster Wallace book, and uh, and I, I fell in love there with with Wallace, obviously, which I've I've covered ad nauseum on the program. But um, as far as writing projects, the one that was really kind of a happy accident. So myself and my two best friends from college, um, we were both in the midst of our first kind of crappy day jobs, and I was a junk mail copywriter, and uh, you know one of them was working in in D.C. He was one of these just you know, douchebags in a suit that you see walking around Washington, D.C. He was that guy. And um, I think you just defended our entire capital city. Yeah, it's okay, man. They know. That's all right. They'll I mean, be they all know right. what they are. I, I don't mean that as a pejorative. You know what I mean? I love this guy. <laughs> I mean douchebag in the nicest sense possible. Dude, I do. I mean, you're, you're all riled up. You're all idealistic. You, you know, your parents have some money. You're going to go out there and, and wear a suit and change the world. And God bless him, man. You know what I mean? So right. um, he's this guy. And the third guy was in seminary. So we... This was back when The Onion didn't have any sports content. So The Onion, the satire thing, we were, we were all huge fans of it. And um, they didn't have any sports content, so we decided we would start uh, a sports satire e-zine. Um, so we started a thing called The Field Judge, Satire for the Discerning Sports Fan. Um, three articles, just sent it out once a week via email. There were no graphics or anything. It was extremely lo-fi. Um, but we compiled a pretty big subscriber base for it. Um, and then I just started spamming everybody with it espn and si and fox and you know back when the economy was good back when espn was like just collecting freelance writers right uh, they they hit me back and they said um you know do you want to start doing some writing for the magazine so that was really the big break um but even that i mean it was a happy stupid accident you know of all the people around the world who were probably spamming espn at the time they they picked our thing which was just huge and it was that was that when you first got paid for your own work? Obviously, you were a copywriter, so you were getting paid yeah. to write stuff, but that doesn't really count. Right, exactly. Although I, w- I will say that's that's another sort of uh, sort of happy accident because it's a good way to just sort of learn how to put words in a proper form, Dude, which, is, which is really good practice. I mean, being able to write somebody else's content is good practice for yourself. Oh, absolutely. And as much as I hated that job, it was it was amazing practice, you know, because I was I was working with words every day, you know, which is a huge privilege. And um, yeah, so that was a good thing. The ESPN deal. Yeah, I think that was the first time it probably was the first time that I got paid like significant money to to write um, to write stuff that was mine. Um, before that I had been, you know, cause I, I realized I wanted to be a writer. So I, I was looking for opportunities and I, I had this gig with a boxing website that was great. They would get me credentialed to all the fights that I wanted to go see or that I could go see. So I would get these ringside, you know, press credentialed seats at all these fights and, um, and just write fight reports and interviews and features. And, you know, that was actually one of the funnest writing jobs I ever had. It didn't pay anything, but you know, I got credentialed to go to all these fights, and uh, it was kind of my my entree into the world of boxing. So it was a blast. And, and how did you get into that? Because I mean, that that's a, so you said you were writing for this site. Did you just reach out to him, or was it through the sports satire thing? What was that connection? No, I just reached out to him because I loved boxing. You know, and I I had been reading all these books, and it occurred to me that like a lot of the literary books about sports were about boxing. So a lot of the best sports books were boxing books, and. Um, you know, I'd read a bunch of these things, and I'd always kind of had a, a a sort of romantic fascination with boxing. I think when you were a kid growing up in the '80s, you had both Rocky and Mike Tyson. Um, yeah. So as a as a kid growing up in the '80s, like you were you were kind of steeped in the you know in the romantic lore of of boxing. So I started going to a gym. I started training. Uh, I learned to fight. I started sparring in the gym, and kind of concurrent with that, I was I was doing all these fight reports and going to see all these fights. So. Um, it was, 
it was fun, man. It was it was kind of a deep dive into the world of boxing. And yeah, I just reached out to these people and I just said, look, I'm not a super experienced writer. I've gotten some poems published and they were like, you know, great, come write for us. So it was, it, again, a huge break. All right. So that was uh, so you, you're now a paid writer in some capacity, you're at least, you're at least drawing checks for some of your work. Yeah. You're writing, did you say for ESPN, the magazine? Yep. And was that, was that mostly on the satire or were you doing, were you doing more like stories for them? Yeah, it was both, man. It kind of started with the satire and then grew into stories. So here's how that worked. It was crazy. So they had, they had the stable of freelance writers for this little section in the front of the magazine called the jump. And what they would do, they would send us all like a huge exhaustive list of everything that was happening in sports for like a two week period. And we'd all get this list and all we had to do was go through the list and for everything we were interested in, write like a funny paragraph about it. And so we would, we would write the funny paragraph, send the thing in and they would send us a check. And then you would get the magazine in the mail and you'd look to see if they had used any of your stuff. So that was kind of like the baseline of how it started and if you look at those early 2000s, you know, late 90s, yeah, it was early 2000s, ESPN magazines, like a bunch of those guys have gone on to do like significant stuff in, in media. Like some of them went on to write for Jimmy Kimmel and one of them was Bill Simmons, I think. So um, like there were a bunch of these guys that, you know, ESPN decided had some talent and, um, you know, they just threw a few hundred bucks at them every couple of weeks. So it started, uh, it started with that. And then, you know, I kind of got the got the leverage or got the entree to where I could pitch stories to this editor. And then I started pitching stories to uh, the dot-com editors. And and really, ESPN was just like anywhere else. You know, if you had a good story idea, if you had a unique angle, um, they probably said yes. You know, they said yes more than they said no, for sure. So, um, you know, I got a chance to do interviews, cover fights, um, write longer kind of satirical stuff for page two. They have this thing called ESPN.com page two, which is where Simmons I loved, used to write. I loved page two. Yeah, that was Bill Simmons, and it was uh, – who else was on that? Yeah, was... Thompson wrote for page two, yeah. which was ridiculous. Yeah. You know, like to – Scoop Scoop Jackson wrote Scoop for Jackson. them for a while. Yeah. I mean, to go, yeah. in, to go into the office in the morning and realize like, oh, there's my article, and it's next to Hunter S. Thompson's. That was a pretty huge deal, man. That felt really good, so – um, and obviously when it came to like, when it came time to, to pitch a book, to do a book proposal, like just having, you know, having the ESPN credential next to your name didn't hurt at all. And, um, yeah, it just opened up a lot of other magazine opportunities. Yeah. It's like, it's like if you're a regular contributor to the gospel coalition and pitching a book to Crossway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're basically <laughs> in, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a shoe in. Yeah. So, so you wrote for ESPN, uh, ESPN, the magazine, what did you did you contribute to Sports Illustrated at any point, dude? I never did SI, okay. and that's a huge regret of mine because I, as a kid, I grew up reading SI. That was the other thing that was in our house. I mean, honestly, if it hadn't been for SI coming to our doorstep once a week, I, I would be functionally illiterate uh, to this day. I think like that was you know that was steadily kind of my my trickle of good writing. And, and back in those days, as you know, man, SI was full of great writers. Oh, they had brilliant writers. Dude, they did. It was a thick, like substantial sports magazine. You had Rick Riley on the back page. You know, I, I would always flip to the back and read Riley's column first. It was hilarious. And he used uh, to have a fastball too. I think he's lost it, but yeah, yeah, he was, he was good. Dude, he was kind of the, I don't know, this is going to be a comparison that will make people mad, but I mean, he was kind of the early Bill Simmons in terms of Having his own brand and being funny. Um, Simmons, I think, has taken it to another level, obviously. But, um, but yeah, Riley, you know, he had his own brand. He had his own thing going. He was the back page guy. It was always funny and insightful and could be touching. Um, you know, it was just good, good writing. And, uh, yeah, every week, man, I would get that mag and I'd read it, you know, front to back. And, um, yeah, really kind of regret that I never did any, any SI work. I mean, they they still have. I mean, they they still probably have the best sort of long form sports writers. I think. I mean, yeah, uh, I guess I guess Wright, Wright Thompson writes for ESPN now, and he's fantastic. But dude, Wright like, Thompson is a freak, man. That guy's a freak show. I love his stuff. S. I mean, L. Price, who yeah, writes, I think, I think he's Sports Illustrated. I think he is Sports Illustrated. Yeah, he does a really nice job. I mean, as far as writers that I like, actively fanboy who aren't dead, the list is short. Um, but Wright Thompson is definitely on it. He does an amazing job. And I, I feel like if I had stayed in the, in the ESPN pipeline, that would have been my goal. You know, my goal would have been to do 
stuff like like he does. You know, long long form deep dive kind of stuff. But um, you know, the career took a turn there in the mid two thousands, and I decided I wanted to 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 do books, and that's kind of how it went. All right. That's a natural setup for my next question, which is you decided to do books. And I know that I don't I don't know what your first book was. So you can you can answer that question first is what's your yeah. first book. But then you, you got into writing some biographies, um, yeah. specifically sports biographies. And you've done a number of those over the years, some of them more recently with with younger athletes. But you mm-hmm. did a Tyson biography, didn't you? That was my very first book, man. And it's not oh, that was your that. first one ever. Wow. That's uh, that's yeah. starting on top. Dude, here's how that thing came about. It was crazy. So. Uh, we were in Orlando visiting my in-laws and my in-laws at the time uh, were doing very well. They were living in this like quasi McMansion-y gated community um, in Orlando. They were working for Campus Crusade, which, you know, good buck in that racket in those days. That's a whole nother story. But uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing like nonprofits for money. Suffering for Jesus, man. But anyway, they they were there. And um, being that it was Orlando in the summer, it was like 150 degrees with like 150% humidity. It was just miserable, right? In the middle of a swamp. And, uh, and we were stuck there for like a week. And I'm sitting around, I'm bored out of my mind. And I look across the street in this posh kind of gated community. And I see this dude, uh, this big African-American dude, semi-familiar looking to me, but I couldn't place him. Um, but he was this big rocked up guy, man, looked really fit. And he was out there sweeping a sidewalk doing yard work. So one day I was so bored and this is very atypical for me and for an introvert. Um, I went over and I introduced myself and, uh, I just said, Hey, you look really familiar. Um, I don't know what from, but you know, my name's Ted and I'm, I'm staying across the street. And, um, he introduced himself. He was Pinklin Thomas, who was heavyweight champion, uh, for a minute in between Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson. Um, so being the fight fan that I was, I knew him immediately. Uh, we started talking boxing. We ended up playing a lot of pool that week at his house, watching fight films. Um, he kind of spun out his life story to me uh, just conversationally over the course of that week. And at the end of it, he goes, um, you know, I know you're a writer. I know you're doing stuff with ESPN. Um, would you be willing to write my life story and, uh, and, and turn it into a book? And I, of course, said yes, having no idea how to write a book proposal. I'd never, you know, I don't want to say I'd never thought about doing a book, but I really hadn't at that point thought about doing a book. And um, so I said yes. I went home, you know, Googled book proposal templates for a half a day, taught myself how to write one of those um, and just started blasting it out to publishers who would accept uh, unagented submissions. At that time, I didn't have an agent, didn't even know what that looked like. Um, so I just started blasting this thing out and the, and the feedback that I got back was, um, really cool idea, really good writing. Um, but Pinklin Thomas isn't famous enough to sell a book on his own. Um, can you frame this up differently somehow? So, uh, that's when I, I kind of came up with the whole facing Tyson angle of what if we told the stories of 15 guys who fought Tyson and every chapter could be. Every chapter is basically like a Wright Thompson y long form kind of piece about a certain guy. So um, the way it came together was the Pinkland thing ended up being a chapter. Um, and then I traveled all over the country to, to interview all these other guys that fought Mike. And it was to this day the most fun I've ever had as a writer. And to this day, if I was locked in a room with one of, with all my books and I had to pick one to read, it would be that one. Um, I love. I love that book, had a blast doing it, loved all those fighters. They were phenomenal guys. So who were, uh, I, I, this is not a quiz, you don't have to remember all, but who are some of the fighters you highlighted in there? <clears throat> Dude, Evander Holyfield was one. Holyfield was the guy that got his ear chomped off by Tyson right. in Vegas. So seminal I met, moment. Yeah, seminal moment in boxing history, dark moment. But uh, I flew to Atlanta to visit Evander Holyfield, and we had... Uh, we had made an appointment. It was going to be my last interview for the book. And uh, when I got to his, at that time, palatial you know, mansion in Atlanta, I learned that he was in Cancun. Um, so I swore a whole bunch and punched my steering wheel uh, and then told, told the guy that I would just chill in Atlanta and if he showed up to call me. So uh, lo and behold, about 9 o'clock that night, I was sitting in a Barnes & Noble just reading books uh, Holyfield's uh, handlers, his people called and said, uh, he's back. He wants to meet with you. So I uh, drove out to Evander's house again, and uh, we had an amazing interview. He had me, uh, I was in his office, and he got me like up out of the chair, and he was like putting his shoulder into me, showing me all the things that he did to like 
to bully Tyson and beat Tyson twice. So um, that was pretty incredible. Um, met with Tyrell Biggs, who was the 1984 Olympic super heavyweight gold medalist. Um, he had me meet him uh, at 11 o'clock at night on a street corner in Philly um, in a really rough part of the city. And uh, I pulled up. I was super nervous. And uh, he called me on my cell and he said, don't get out of your car. You know, I'll come to you. And, uh, you know, at this point, you know, you're at the mercy of this guy. The guy's huge. He's a great fighter, lethal. You know, I mean, he could have he could have killed me and tossed my body in a dumpster and stolen my Nikes. And that would have been the end of that. But uh, he was phenomenal. Amazing guy. We ended up driving around uh, his old neighborhood for hours. We ended up in this all night Chinese place. And uh, I asked him the question. I said, if you hadn't been a fighter, like, what would you have done? Pretty standard question, you know, standard sports yeah. type question. And uh, he grabbed my notebook and my pen and he started drawing and he drew a little Fred Flintstone with a boxing glove on it. Uh, and he slid it back across the table and he goes, I, I always wanted to be an artist. You know, I, I would have been a cartoonist if I hadn't been a boxer. You know, this huge, like scarred up, tough looking dude. Um, just always wanted to be an artist. So, I mean, that was the kind of, that was the kind of thing I ran into a lot in that book. I got to, there, there were a couple of guys who were still fighting. So I actually got to be in the dressing room and walk, walk to the ring with Tony Tubbs during one of his fights. Um, that was pretty cool. Uh, Lennox Lewis got to interview Lennox. Um, trying to think of other names you would, you would know. I, I met Tyson, uh, after his last fight with Kevin McBride in DC in which he got knocked out. Um, Tyson was phenomenal, thoughtful. Uh, regretful, introspective, you know, everything, everything you want out of a person, much less just an interview subject. He was, right. uh, he was outstanding. So a lot of people don't believe that when I tell them that, but uh, he was great. Well, that makes, uh, that makes sense to me that, that he would be that way. I mean, he, I've seen, I've seen a couple interviews with him and he's, yeah, he, he has a side to him that is very different than biting off of biting off ears and, you know, committing criminal acts and, yeah. In his early years, yep. so it's good, it's good to hear that he's that he's turned around. Oh, and he's got facial tattoos, which also give people the impression he's completely insane. Dude, I think Mike is fascinating on the level of. Here's the thing with Mike: there's two sides to him. You know, one is, you know, you know the verse in the Bible where you know where it goes. You know, your God is your stomach. Um, that's Mike. Mm-hmm. You know, Mike is is governed by his impulses. You know, and I think a lot of people who don't know Christ like that's. I mean, that's how I would be if I if I didn't have Christ as the as the governor, like keeping me in check. I, I would totally be that guy. You know, I'd be completely governed by my impulses, and my appetites, and so I think there's that aspect of Mike. But there's also the aspect, and this is kind of the this is the common grace, like created in God's image aspect. Like he really feels bad, like he feels guilty, and I think he he understands the depravity of some of the things that he's done, and. You know, I left that press conference after the McBride fight just blown away by that aspect of his character. You know, like this guy really, he gets sin in a way that a lot of Christians don't get sin, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is, I mean, he gets it and he doesn't kind of at the same time. Exactly. It's it's one of those kind of odd conundrums. For sure. Um, So how... You know, you you started off writing that book with the intent to write one guy's life story. It became part of a part of a whole book. How did he feel about that? Sort of not having his life story written, but having it included in a larger book. Ah, uh, bittersweet. You know, bittersweet. I think the thing about famous people or people who ha- people who experience any level of fame at all, I think they all think, or many of them think, it's bigger than it actually is. And so you lose a little bit of that perspective. And the other thing that happens is you always think that getting the fame back is just around the corner. You know, like a couple of things break your way and then you're back on top. And, you know, the fact of the matter is neither of those things is true. You know, most people who are famous, the world doesn't care. And for most people who are famous, like you're you're never going to get it back. So I think it was bittersweet dealing with kind of the reality of that and and where he fit into the broader picture um but hopefully it was hopefully it was sweet in the sense that i think i did a really great job with his story and i hope he felt honored by it and you know that that principle for me has kind of i've tried to let that drive the nonfiction that i've that i've written over the years even guys with tough stories you know and even guys with 
stories that aren't necessarily flattering. You know, you always want to do your your level best to honor that person and honor their their honesty and their willingness to share the story. So uh, hopefully you felt like I was able to do that. You just said something really interesting um, where you said, I think I did a really good job with his story, which um, I'm going to transition to a a slightly different line of questioning. And that is, you know, so at this point, you're you know, you've written you've written the book you or you you've written a whole lot of things. You published them. Your name has you have a byline in a variety of publications, websites. What does confidence as a writer for you look like then? Is it are, are you an egotistical writer? Are you um, are you are you still sort of racked by insecurity every time you hit send on a piece? Were you ever racked by insecurity? Sort of talk talk me through the the insecurity, confidence, ego sort of yeah. triumvirate. Dude, okay. First of all, fascinating question. You're doing an amazing job. Um, <laughs> this is really interesting. Like, um, I think. Sadly, at that time of my life, I was an egotistical writer in that, and this is the sin part of my own heart, and and I'm ashamed of this, and I I repent of this, and I have, I felt like I deserved more than I was getting. Um, And I think I felt like I was better than I probably actually was at that time. Um, And again, I'm not proud of that, and I'm kind of ashamed to say it. You know, I think it's funny, man. Writing is the only thing that I think I've ever been truly confident about. Um, Even when I played football and even when I was really strong and I was really capable and coming into my own as a player, my bravado was always kind of false, you know, Mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. One of which being I had a dad who was so afraid of me getting a big head. I think he, like, convinced me that I was a worse athlete than I actually was. Um, (laughs) But he, his, his mortal fear in life was me being cocky and arrogant. So, you know, mission accomplished on the football level. But um, sadly, I, I became cocky as a writer. And, and, and you know, somehow I'm, you were still human after all that. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I just always felt really confident about it, even when I didn't, even when I shouldn't have, you know. Um, so I felt like. I felt like I was putting out quality stuff. And part of is, that is... Is that a perk for a writer? Feeling th- confident even when you shouldn't be? I think it was a perk in that I know a lot of writers who don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the place that my insecurity came in was it was not related to the work that I was producing. It was related to I always felt like, man, I'm not making enough money. You know, I'm not doing well enough. Other people are getting more than me. Like, that's where sort of the torment came in for me as a writer. But... Um, at very few points that I feel actually sheepish about what I was producing. Um, I think I always felt pretty confident about that. You know, ironically, as I've gotten older, um, as I've gotten broken and, and humbled and repented of a lot of that, um, I probably feel a little bit less confident in my writing now, but I also think my writing is probably quantifiably better than it was back then, if that makes sense. Um, but the Lord has me in a place of, you know, reading other great writers and being exposed to great things all the time and realizing, you know, I am good. You know, at the end of the day, I know I'm good, Pipe. Like, I know I'm, yeah. I'm capable of doing great work. But at the end of the day, I also realize there are a lot of other people who do great work, too. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. And that's even something that I can, I can congratulate them on and celebrate and feel good about. And that's so- all the Lord. So would it be fair to say that confidence for you now looks looks like sort of you recognize your ability, but there's not a need to compare to other people's work? I think so, man. And and I truly, all kidding aside and all irony and sarcasm aside, I'm so thankful for that because it's allowed me to really enjoy other people's work. And I think in the past when I read somebody's work, especially a peer, like somebody who was our age, um, and it was good – I would feel threatened by it, you know, and I couldn't enjoy it and I couldn't reap the benefit of it. Whereas now, by God's grace, you know, that's that's an experience that I get to have and I get to enjoy other people's work. And uh, it's really fun, man. Well, that's I appreciate that answer. I'm, I I asked that because I think I think it's sort of I, I've never struggled with real insecurity as a writer uh, yeah. with with the exception of. I am afraid to write certain genres. Like I'm terrified of fiction and I would be afraid to publish poetry. I'm not afraid to write it. I'm afraid to publish it. 
Yeah. So I should have so, been afraid to publish it. Actually, that's a good impulse. <laughs> but but at the same time, there's there's a there's lessons learned from putting crappy work out and either taking your lumps or realizing that like the lumps aren't that bad. You sort right. of you know it's like a toddler learning to walk. You trip and fall and you get some bruises, but that's not so bad. You, you yeah. learn not to be afraid. I just I I feel like there's a um, there's sort of a, a tone around writing where people sort of talk about how perpetually it's such a grind and mm. it's so I'm so fearful to to publish mm. and I just I, I'm just curious what your thoughts on insecurity and ego were because I don't yeah. I don't resonate with that and so I'm always like if you hate it that much don't do why, it yeah do go do something else. else yeah I mean writing dude writing for me is joyful I love it like I love nothing more than a quiet office and time to like make sentences and, and paragraphs and stories. Um, it truly brings me joy. So yeah, I, I haven't had that angsty, tortured experience of, you know, I'm, I'm so insecure about this. And, and I think, I think people who have that, and I'm, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here. So feel free to disagree or push back. I think people that feel that are more in love with the idea of being a writer than the actual act of writing itself. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that the title writer mm-hmm. is something that sounds, you know, uh, ref, re, yeah, refined, sexy, some like so there's some sort of savant. Whereas the act of writing is it's just like any other job that somebody can be good at. You can do it with excellence and you can find joy in it or it can be a total grind if it's not for you. Totally, totally. And, and there are aspects of it. And, you know, this as a as a working writer, I mean, there are aspects of it that are a grind. Don't get me wrong. It hasn't all been ice cream and puppy dogs. But um, at the end of the day, I would rather do this than any other thing, which is why I'm doing this. Um, right. So it, it was a, a pretty easy choice, even though it hasn't always been great financially, even though it has been a grind working with certain people or whatever. Uh, at the end of the day, it's it's been a pretty good thing. Yeah. No, I appreciate those answers. All right. I want to, I want to take another slight turn. So you started writing books. Your, mm-hmm. your, the Tyson book was your first. You said at this point, it would still be the first one you would pick up to read sort of your favorite work. Yep. But at some point you transitioned from writing sports into writing uh, Christian nonfiction, which, <laughs> yeah. which is a, which is a pivot. How did that come about? And well, first, what was your first Christian book? Was it, was, was the first one you did uh, the one with Kevin DeYoung? Yeah, yeah, it was Why called Why We're Not Emergent by two guys who should be with yeah. uh, with the now famous Katie Y. So yes, the now, uh, yeah, we, we we can talk about that too. Um, but so for for listeners uh, on the younger end of things, at one point, what a decade ago, yeah, the the emergent church was a rising sort of ranging between heretical and semi heretical version of church that essentially sort of. Uh, it, it took the it took the heart out of the gospel. It, it was sort of a retake on classic liberal theology, and it sort of decentralized the church. And everybody's experiences made up our story of truth, as opposed to an actual story of truth. And you and Kevin DeYoung, who at that point was just just some pastor, um, yeah. wrote a book in response to it. So tell me how that came about. Both both how you two met, and then how that book came about in the midst of that sort of uh, theological fervor. Dude, yeah, it's nutty. I mean, you talk about little accidents and, and providence and all that. So uh, we were living in Lansing, Michigan at the time. I was writing for ESPN. I was doing these sports books. Uh, we were barely making it financially. KK was working some. Uh, so that was us at the time. And the pastor at the church we were going to, that we had been going to for not very long, had a stroke. He was old. Um, he was great. And his replacement was KDY. And I'm I'm condensing here, but he was just a kid, man. He was just a just a snot nosed Dutch kid from West Michigan, the 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 types of which grow on trees in West Michigan. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know they they grow up in Grand Rapids or Holland. They go to seminary, whatever, and they come. You know they come to be the pastor at your church. So yeah, they that's literally they all go to Hope or Calvin. They all go to Hope or Calvin. He went to Hope. You know, so that's literally all I knew about this kid. Uh, when he showed up to, to pastor our church. And at that time, he was only a couple years younger than me. So we were, I think I was probably in my mid to late 20s. He was maybe in his mid 20s. And um, so he shows up, he gives a couple of sermons. Um, I say to my wife, and this is going to be weird for you, um, but I, I say to her, I swear to gosh, man, as I sit here, I, I said to her, this kid's going to be the next John Piper. Like he was that <laughs> gifted 
at expositing scripture. And I, I didn't know all that that meant. I didn't know everything there is to know about your dad. I still don't. But, um, you know, I was just dipping my toes into like reform theology and, and John Piper's work and all that. And um, I just thought this kid has, he has, it. <clears throat> he has it. He has like whatever it is, he has it. So um, we actually started hanging out and became friends, not because of that, uh, but because we were both Chicago Bears fans. Um, so we had we had both had roots in the Chicago area. KDY lived there for a few years um, when he was growing up. My extended family is from the Chicago area. So we were both Bear fans. Uh, so we would get together and watch Bear games. Right around that time, uh, the emergent church movement, which you explained really well, was starting to – it was starting to kind of hit our church. And our church was neighbors with a college campus. Um, we had a co- we had a lot of college kids who were reading like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and and thinking it was cool, you know, basically. And I think because KK and I were young, and because I had I don't know the hipster glasses and the long hair or whatever, they, these kids would give me these books and they'd be like, "Cluck, you you would love this. Like the, this is awesome." And so I start reading these Rob Bell books and these Brian McLaren books, and I'm underlining like a madman, like things that things that don't make sense. And I'm not a theologian. I never have might been. might have been easier to underline the stuff that did make sense. Dude, seriously, it would have been in retrospect. So I'm underlining all this stuff, and I, I go to KDY, and I'm like, dude, you're the, you're the theologian. You're the guy that's been to seminary. Like, look at this stuff that I've underlined and tell me if this makes sense to you or not. Like, is there something I'm not seeing? Like, I was just – I still think of myself as a meathead, you know, and I'm like – I'm like – at that time, I was like, wow, if Zondervan's putting this out, it must be good. You know, it can't be heresy if they're putting it out, which I was dead wrong on that. But uh, so I give the book to KDY. He's like, no, this is trash. You're right. Um, and I think I, I don't remember, honestly, if it was him or me, but uh, we decided to do a book together that would be kind of half theology, half journalism, you know, half man on the street, half kind of academic debunking of the emergent church and uh and we did it and we ended up getting it placed with moody um they loved it they put it out and uh then they put out another book uh called why we love the church which was basically the same book um just with new words because they wanted to capitalize on the success of the first book so um that's how those two came about and then and then um so uh we can we can you can answer this however you want. So mm-hmm. since that time, mm-hmm. Kevin DeYoung has continued to pastor as of a couple of months ago, announced that he was taking a church in North Carolina, moving from Michigan, but has been he was in Michigan for what, ten, twelve years? Yeah, um, at least. And and he's you know, he's sort of become he's a main stage speaker at a lot of these reform conferences we poke fun at and take shots at. <laughs> and and you're you have continued as a writer and as a teacher and, you know, you have a great career, but it took a different path than his. Yeah. Do you think that's primarily because he had a pulpit and so he was regularly preaching, he could be heard, you know, podcasted, whatever. What was, yeah. what was it that, or is it just that the reform crowd respects the theologian, not the journalist? What was mm-hmm. it that sort of drew, drew him to that place and you to where you are? Not, not to say that you've gone opposite directions, just different directions. Yeah, no, different directions for sure. And, and, you know, to be clear and completely honest, I think for a, for a long time, I was jealous of his success. And again, you know, things that you're ashamed of, things that you repent of and, and all that, it's, uh, you know, it's in the past, thankfully. But, uh, but yeah, it really tweaked me for a while that, you know, that he did experience that level of fame and I didn't. But I, I think it's, you know, the reasons are myriad. I would boil it down to, um, you know, nobody gets famous by accident. And I, I don't think Katie Y would disagree with this. You know, he he hopped on the blogosphere train early in all that. And I remember a marketing guy, Moody, saying, you know, you have to blog every day. And, you know, my thought was, what if I don't have something to say every day? Um, but Katie Y jumped on it, man. I mean, God bless him. He got on the blog and he blogged every day. Uh, so we built a following that way. Um he built a following by being really talented. You know, he's a, he's really good in the pulpit, so I think people resonated with that. The other kind of like perfect storm ingredient that got him famous was I just think the emergent church was really good from a marketing standpoint for guys like KDY and and Jared Wilson and other other guys like that. Um 
it was really exciting to have something to be against. And, <laughs> you know, from a marketing standpoint, like you can't beat that energy, you know? So I, th- I think the young reform movement kind of has the emergent church movement to thank in that it kind of catapulted all of those guys to a level of like interest and prominence that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, people wouldn't have just naturally gotten interested in reformed theology unless it was the the inverse of the emergent church. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it was it was a it was like a a tiny little mini reformation, sort of a, a taking a stand against this threat to the to the church. Absolutely, people love that. They love that energy. They love the blogosphere. They loved all the conflict, dude. Ten years ago, eight years ago. The blogosphere was like reality TV for Christians. I mean, it was must-see television, man. You had guys like slinging crap at each other all the time online, man, and it was exciting for a certain kind of person. So um, I don't know. That's not to take anything away from anybody, but I think, you know, those those ingredients kind of got him to where he is. But, you know, I'll I'll end it by saying this. Um, He is a super gifted dude, you know, great, great, great ministry um, was a great pastor to us. You know, we, we love the guy. And even though we've kind of gone our separate ways and we don't necessarily hang or talk that much anymore, like I have, I have huge, you know, respect and, and good feelings toward him. So, um, good dude. All right. You mentioned something earlier where you're talking about how, you know, you, you were living in Lansing at the time you were kind of struggling to make it. KK was working. Uh, I know that it, I think when we had connected the first time, this has just been a few years ago, you were teaching yeah. part-time. I think you were working, like you were waking up at like 3am to go sling boxes at UPS and then Dude, writing. Yeah. And so like you were doing the full on hustle as I mean, so I think I think a lot of times people think of that as like, oh, you do that in your 20s and then you get established and then you're successful. You're doing yeah. this as a married father to yeah, to, to to make a way for you to write, I think. Is that is that sort of is that uh, what was behind all that hustle because writing was the thing you wanted to invest in so you were doing these other things to to be able to do that? That's exactly right, man. And and as you know, I mean, it was it was very up and down. Like I had some hugely successful moments in my 20s and then dips and then more peaks financially like um yeah you never really i think with the exception of a of a very select few people you never really make it as a writer i mean you're always in the process of making it or in the process of of getting by or paying bills or whatever so yeah when you first met me man when we started doing the show with trogues um i got my mfa I was teaching, I was adjuncting, but I wasn't teaching full time. Um, so I didn't have the stability that I have now. And yeah, I was still writing. I was ghostwriting. I was doing books. I was doing whatever kind of paying projects I could get. And um, honestly, it wasn't a great time. You know, it wasn't a great time for us financially. And um, shortly after that, the job here at Union popped and uh, and we moved down here and we've, we've loved it. So um, and, and I was late to the game in grad school. I came very late to that party. Um, again, I think it was a, a combination of just not liking school. Like I didn't like schools in undergrad. Um, and also I never thought of myself as an academic. I never thought of myself as the kind of guy who would go to grad school at all. But, uh, I went, I went very late in the game. I loved it. Um, and then I had this credential to teach full time and to get the kind of job that I have now, which, uh, which I absolutely love. So, um, it was a very circuitous route. It definitely was not the, oh, I'm 19 years old and I have my whole life planned out and it's it's worked out that way. It was the opposite of that. But, uh, <laughs> but it's well, been well, good. Welcome to the life of a, of a, of a writer, a creative yeah. person, especially yeah. if you're trying to make a career out of it. I mean, I, I have had a full-time job the entire time I've written anything, so writing has always been on the side, whereas for yeah. you, you, you've been, you have sought to make it a career. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's visit the MFA real quick because uh, you're not on Twitter, yeah. but there is a, there is a Twitter account about it's called a guy in my MFA or something like that. Dude, Basically, I've seen it, and honest to gosh, I go on Twitter sometimes just to look at that because it's, it's so funny. Oh, it's hilarious! Yeah, so it's it's yeah. it's, it's, it's like a picture of a guy with like the knitted wool stocking cap and a scarf, and <laughs> and then it's just it's just pretentious quotes. 
you know, including the word Kafka-esque and uh, things like that. So I want you to describe your experience as as an adult, not a fresh out of college, you know, babyface kid in yeah. the MFA program and sort of set the record straight on on the benefits of such things. We had a really interesting conversation about this a few months ago yeah. where uh, – I, I have been chewing on it ever since because I, like you, hated school. I yeah. still hate school. Yeah. But have considered going to get an advanced degree at some point, and that's the only one I've ever heard of based on your description that yeah. sounded possibly intriguing. So, yeah. so uh, yeah, describe the experience. Dude, so I got, a, I got an MFA in creative nonfiction. It was a blast, all right? It was an absolute blast. Um, I think that's due to a couple of factors. One, I was older. Um, so I just had kind of the confidence and self-awareness that comes from older age. Um, two, I had already written a bunch of books. So dude, I'd done more books than any of my faculty members at my MFA. So again, not that I was cocky and I think by God's grace, he was starting to do some of the, the humbling kind of laying low of me before I went to the MFA or else I would have been just insufferable. But, uh, (laughs) But yeah, I had some confidence. I was like, I've done this before. I'm really just here to get credentialed and I'm going to have fun, man. And I did. I uh, I went to all the classes. I never skipped anything. I went to even like a bunch of poetry stuff. So our program had a, we had a creative nonfiction track and a poetry track. And I would like crash the, you know, the poetry classes at night and stuff. I was just like a sponge, man. And I enjoyed it. It felt like, it felt like writing camp to me. And it was weird being there as a Christian, you know, as a Christian in the fine arts, you're like the devil. You know what I mean? You're, you're just, you're, no, you're, you're worse than the devil. You're like, people assume that you're an idiot. They assume that you're really stupid and that you're a bigot. And I think what was fun about the MFA was showing people that I wasn't stupid, that I could write, that I wasn't a bigoted jerk and that not all Christians were bigoted jerks. Um, so it was fun, man. I had a I had a ball with it. Read a lot of great books. Had my eyes open to a lot of a lot of great authors and things that I didn't know were out there, and um, just enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed the workshops. Enjoyed the the professors a lot, and um, I think it, I gained a lot from it. Even though I had already kind of done the work that they were supposedly training training us up to be able to do. And and so that gave you the credential that puts you in the spot to be able to teach full time, which is what you moved down to Jackson, Tennessee, to do what a year and a half ago, two years ago. Yeah, two years ago, man. I'll be starting ago? year year three is coming up here, so I uh, can't believe it, man. It's gone really fast. All right, so we're 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 getting closer to landing the plane on this. The last couple questions I have for you, but just about teaching. So yeah. you're obviously you still write, you know, you you. Uh, you did the screenplay uh, yep. for Silverdome, the Silverdome yep. movie, which uh, we've talked about on the podcast before. So you've yep. kind of branched out into some different creative things, which, again, I find I find very cool because that sounds scary to me. <laughs> but uh, but your but your full time job is teaching in the communications department at uh, at Union. Yep. So what what are your favorite things about teaching? Is that something you look at and you go, "I'm going to teach for the rest of my life"? Is it just a great chapter? What how, sort of what what is your what is your your current favorite thing about teaching and then yeah how do you how do you look ahead at it dude lord willing i will teach here for the rest of my life um i love it here i I really like jackson uh i really like union i really like just the size and the in the ethos of the school that i'm at so yeah lord willing man i i don't see this as a stepping stone i don't want to go anywhere else as of this moment Um, I love, I do. I love teaching, man. And I just, I love the relationships with the students. I love seeing the light bulb go on for them, which is kind of a cliche thing for a teacher to say, but, um, you know what it is? I think it's, it's that moment where students realize that journalism can sound really cool and that the, the writing can be really, it can be an exciting experience, you know? Um, when they read a great feature or a great long form piece or a great kind of Wright Thompson thing and they go, man, I thought journalism was, you know, covering a car accident and writing the five W's into your lead. But, you know, journalism can be this incredible, artistic, expressive, creative, stimulating thing where you get to have your own brand and your own voice and your own style. And I think, you know, building the program around that experience 
uh, has been really gratifying, man. And it's been fun to see students have fun with it. I mean, I tell my students, you know, journalism isn't like, it's not like studying physics or biology. You know, I, I don't know what that's like because I've never done it. But, um, <laughs> you know, we're trying to get people to develop as artists and, and to have joy in their work and to be stimulated by reading certain people. And man, at the end of the day, if that's not fun, I don't know what is, man. You know, so what we do is a lot of fun. And I don't know what it's like for other programs, but it's it's a blast to do what we do. So um, I really love it, man. And and yeah, like I said, I hope I hope I'm here for a long time. What is what is teaching journalism from in a in a Christian institution? So you know, you're not teaching news reporting, and you're not. I mean, it's not a. It, I mean, yeah, you yeah, are. I, you, I was gonna yeah. say you are, but it's not like it's not just that. It's it's that with with a different foundation, I would think. So what is what is teaching it at a Christian institution? Sort of what's the difference between that and just sort of, like you said, the five W's and writing a good yeah. lead and those kinds of things? I mean, on one level, hopefully there's very little difference. I mean, mm -hmm. my goal for my students is to get them so prepared that they can go out and compete at the highest level. So, um, I mean, my goal, my dream for my students and for this program is to have kids writing for ESPN, the magazine or the New York Times or wherever and, and competing and doing really well. So I don't want to, I don't want to cater the program and I don't want to have the kind of program where I'm just preparing them to go write for the Baptist press or whatever. Um, <laughs> now, the, the exciting thing about teaching at a Christian institution and the thing that I love about it is that, you know, we can bring the gospel and Christ into the classroom as we talk about all these issues that, that are germane to the worlds of journalism and media. So, I mean, it's hard to talk about a lot of these media issues without bringing Christ into it. And I'm just so thankful that I'm at a place where I can do that. And it's not weird, um, you know, because that worldview obviously colors and drives the way that I handle myself as a journalist. And, and it will it will color and drive the way that my students handle themselves, Lord willing. And uh, it's just cool to be at a place where we can, you know, we can bring that into the classroom. Very cool. Um, all right. Last, uh, this is the last question. So this is looking ahead at future writing projects or maybe something yeah. you're in the middle of that you haven't revealed yet. What, what's a work that you would like to do? Something that's sort of, you, you've been, you've been chewing on for a while. So do you have like an infinite jest type of work in you? Sort of that, that gigantic seminal work by your favorite author or, uh, or, or anything else that you're just sort of like chewing on that's maybe yeah. someday. Man, that's good. You know, I, I don't think, you know, as, as I sit here now, I don't think I have an infinite jest because I don't think I, I don't think I think of myself in that way anymore. And this, this kind of speaks to the ego question that you asked before. And for better or for worse, I don't think of myself as the guy who will write that kind of thing. And, you know, I think Wallace for all of his, for all of his virtues, you know, he, he did have a huge ego and he thought of himself in that way and, and it gave us infinite jest. Um, but I, I'm just not in that headspace anymore. You know, for me, I, I'd, I'd really love to do some movies. You know, creatively, I got a real buzz off of writing Silverdome and seeing that made. And, you know, it's made me want to do that again. So Lord willing, we're in post-production now for Silverdome. You know, hopefully that continues to go well. We get a little distribution deal and, um, I'll be in a position to write some more movies. I think, um, I think that would be fun for me. So uh, hopefully it'll be that. I, I keep telling myself every summer I say this is going to be the summer of poetry. And I, <laughs> I start reading poetry and I, I swear to the people in my life that I'm going to write some more poetry. Uh, it hasn't happened yet because I keep getting busy with, you know, other paying gigs and movie treatments and graphic novels and stuff that – uh, stuff that I get paychecks for. But uh, one of these days, I'd love to do a, a poetry book. Um, I've, never done, I've never done anything more in poetry than get a few published poems, you know, poems published here and there. But uh, I'd like to do a little book, even if it's just a little chat book of, uh, of poetry. I think that'd be really fun. And then, uh, what what do you read in poetry wise? Or now you said you do it every summer. So I think I think when we when we talked on a few episodes ago, you mentioned one poetry book. Yeah. Um, but what are you reading right now that you're enjoying? Dude, I'm still deep into Jim Harrison, man. I mean, that's what it was. Yeah, a yeah. Jim Harrison state of mind in terms of poetry. So I always veer toward Harrison. I veer toward Charles Bukowski when I'm feeling really dark, and then I like 
have to repent of that and like I don't know, give my my soul a, a shower. But uh, go, go read some Robert Frost just to make yourself feel better. <laughs> yeah, I love Bukowski, love uh, and, and love Jim Harrison. So I'm kind of in that frame of mind right now, poetry wise. All right. Well, I'm sure. Hey, we could talk writing for forever, just like writing itself. But I think we'll probably land this thing because an hour and five minutes is plenty long for listeners. Um, thanks, Ted. I enjoyed. I enjoyed the chat. You thank you, man. This has been really fun, and those were yeah. uh, those were tremendous questions. I mean, I, I I don't know if you've had this experience, but you know, in the in the life cycle of a book, you and I have to do a, a we have to do a fair <laughs> amount of promotion, and we do a lot of interviews, a lot of print interviews, and radio interviews, and. These are the questions that I've always wished someone would ask me, but oh, yes. it, it almost never happens. You know, um, uh, how, it, how it usually happens is that somebody's like, tell me about your book. And you can tell that they've spent like 10 seconds with it before the yeah, show. Yeah, they, they, have, they have just found it on their desk. That's what, <laughs> exactly. That's what they just the found producer it. producer for the radio show handed it to them. But no, man, these were terrific. I mean, these are the, these are the kind of answers that you feel honored by as, a, as an author. You know, you feel like it hasn't, it hasn't all been in vain if somebody's noticed enough to be able to ask you these kind of questions. So, uh, so I appreciate that, man. This has been fun. And uh, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it took two years of podcasting before we got here. <laughs> no, that's fine, man. <laughs> Better late than never, for sure. And uh, yeah, one of these days we'll get we'll get the three of us together again. So the whole the whole yeah. group will be back together. In again. theory, that's that's what I hear. Do you yeah. do you want to uh, do you want to sign us off? I will sign us off, man. This has been uh, this has been the Happier Amp podcast. It's been a little bit different. Uh, but until next time, Rachel the Held Evans. The Happy Rant is brought to you by Resonate Recordings. If you go to ResonateRecordings.com, you can see the full range of services they offer. So if you're considering starting a podcast, they are the ones we recommend going with. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see their prices, to connect with them and ask any questions, and to see what they can do to help you launch, edit, master, and improve your podcast. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see what they can do to help you launch and improve your podcast. Life Audio presents Bridges with Monica Schmelter. That we have an enduring hope that can't be taken away when we are in Christ. And to know that we have that, right? And eternal salvation, because this world can be so busy and so dark that we can forget that, right? Because right? sometimes I get caught in the trappings of what's going on in my life this moment. And while I have to recognize that, that's not it. Continue listening on lifeaudio.com or wherever you find your podcast.